How do I know that my Bible is based on the originals? Well, we've got some pretty cool promises that God gives us. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. My words will never pass away. What does that mean? That means the words of life that Jesus spoke, they will last until judgment day. They will always be present on this earth, preserved in some way. All the words of life, what's necessary for salvation, they will not be lost. Okay, that's what he's promising. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this bread of life, this word that God has preserved for us, right? Um, this is what God has promised to preserve. We're going to be talking a little bit about the idea that when manuscripts have been copied over the last, you know, 1500 years, as they've been copied, every now and then copyists make errors and, you know, mistakes and things like that. Is Jesus promising that there will be no mistakes ever made in history in regards to understanding his word or the transmission of his word? Let's just take Jesus for what he says. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. By the end of this lesson, let's ask whether or not that's true. Whether or not the words of Jesus, the words of life, this bread of life, whether or not they have been preserved for us. Okay? John talk, or Jesus talking to his disciples at the very end of uh, Matthew, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, in what sense is Jesus going to be with his disciples to the very end of the age? Well, spiritually, he's going to definitely be there to protect them, right? He is a God that promises to never leave us or forsake us, that no one can snatch us out of his hand. So he is definitely there in that sense. But he's also going to be with us in the sense that his word will continue to endure with us the word that he is sending his disciples out right here to teach. That word is going to be with his church, the remnant, until the very end of the age. Because the word is the means of grace. This is how we are kept in the family of Christ. And so here we've got a very interesting phrase. Uh, Jesus says to Peter, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so we'll take a closer look at exactly what this rock is and how Peter understood what this rock is. But the idea here is that we've got a rock and this rock that Christ has given us, it will not be overcome. In other words, it will stay here. It will stay here till the very end. The powers of the devil will not be able to extinguish from God's people this rock. This foundation will not be able to take it away from them. Well, what is this rock? Here's the larger context. Uh, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, I think, I've got a little thing up in the corner. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ, that is just the Greek word for Messiah. Okay, that's the Greek word for Messiah. So that Messiah that's been talked about all in the Old Testament, that's you, Jesus. 
you are the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. So changes his name to Peter. Uh, and on this rock, Peter, it's Petros, right? The word for rock. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So in what, what is this rock referring to? What's it referring to? What's the rock that, that Jesus is going to build his church on? Well, what's interesting is we've got two options here. You've, we've got Peter himself. Jesus changes his name to rock. And so is Jesus in some sense saying, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And for example, the Catholics really run with that. And they say this is Jesus making uh, Peter the very first pope and that there's going to be the succession then of popes, the papacy that the church is built on. And when they talk uh, ex cathedra, their words are just as authoritative as scripture. But then there's this other thing that's going on here. What did Peter just do? Peter said, you are the Christ. And then Jesus replied, this was not revealed to you by man. What is in Jesus' mind as he's talking here? Is Jesus so much focused on Peter? He's focused on what Peter has just said, right? That's what's in the mind of Christ, right? And on this, this confession that Peter is going to give, he's going to build his church, right? And so in that sense, the church is going to be built on Peter as an apostle that's going to be speaking this testimony about Christ, but it's really about the message. How do we know this? How do we know this is the case? Well, let's see what Peter himself has to say about this topic. So in 1 Peter, this is what Peter says. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. And so in Peter's mind, who's the cornerstone? Who's the foundation? Who's the thing that the whole thing is built upon and around? Christ, right? It's Christ and how Christ is this Messiah. That's the way that Peter in his mind thinks about this. And the way that Peter talks about the rest of the church then is the rest of the church is then this priesthood that has been made by Christ, right? So we are all then agents in this priesthood that is built on Christ and the confession that Jesus is the Christ. In that sense, then, has the stone been overcome? Has the stone been overcome? The testimony of the apostles and prophets about Christ being the Messiah, the confession that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, has that been overcome? No. Christ promises that that will not be overcome. And here we are today still built on that very same foundation. So this is what Jesus is promising to you and I when it comes to his word and his testimony, that the gospel message, the words and works of Christ, they will be remembered, what he has done for you and me, and the church will be built on these things. So that's what he claims. Now, that was 2,000 years ago. In those 2,000 years, what has happened? Well, after uh, Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, 
the apostles went out and they began to teach and God helped them remember everything that Christ said and also taught them new things, right? That's what he promised he would do uh, in John, in the gospel of John, John 14 or 16. And that's what the apostles then went off and they did. And part then of this remembering and this teaching that God gave them was put down in writing. And we call that the New Testament. And those books then, they were gathered, they were circulated, very early period. We saw how that was the case. But what happened to those original texts? The original documents that maybe uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, what happened to that letter? Well, that letter was copied. Maybe there were several copies that were made of that original letter. But that letter, which existed, I forget when, maybe about 60 AD, something like that, uh, it disintegrated at some point because the papyri that it's written on, as awesome of a material as that is, it just does not last 2,000 years. The average papyri, um, if it's taken care of really well, we're talking 100 years maybe, uh, it could last up to 200 years. You see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, papyri, that if they're preserved in just the right conditions, they can be preserved for 2,000 years. But these letters, these were the bread of life. So they were being passed around and they were being used and they were being copied and they were being, uh, they were at the center and the heart of what the church was gathered around. So they were not being just stuck in storage somewhere. They would last for 100, 200 years maybe, but then you've got these copies. And there were copies that were made of the copies. How many copies do you think the early church made of that New Testament? This is the bread of life. How many copies? They're going to make as many as they possibly can. It takes a long time to copy uh, something by hand. Go home this week and try it just so that you can get a feel for what that early church was doing. Copy the, the, you know, the letter to the Ephesians or something like that. Time how long it takes you to copy it down. And then when you're done, count the number of mistakes that you made from that, that hand copy, right? But so they copied as many as they could. A lot of them were lost either because of disintegration or because in that early period, there was persecution that specifically was targeted towards these texts. And so many of them were destroyed, but the copies still were getting made and they still kept getting made and they still kept getting made. And so we don't have the originals, but what we have are copies. And we're going to talk exactly about how many of these copies we have. Um, how do we know then that the copies that we have are the ones that were in the original? Well, maybe to just kind of set the stage a little bit, how would we compare the New Testament to maybe another ancient book of some sort? So Tacitus's Annals, these were written in the first century. Tacitus was a famous Roman historian and uh, his histories that he wrote, they are a deeply, deeply, deeply important text for Roman history. Any Roman historian writing a textbook about what happened in Rome, uh, they use Tacitus and they use him a lot, okay? Deeply important for our understanding of what happened in, in inarguably, like one of the top five most important empires in history. We look at Tacitus here, right? Uh, how many manuscripts do we have? So we don't have the original, we only have copies. How many do we have? 33 manuscripts. We've got 33 manuscripts of Tacitus's Annals. And what's interesting is that when we look at those manuscripts, they're all technically fragments. They're not complete copies of the full work of Tacitus. So out of those 33 manuscripts, we have huge chunks, in fact, books that are missing from Tacitus. 
The earliest manuscript that we have from Tacitus comes from the ninth century, which means that there's around 800 years between when Tacitus wrote his book and when we've got the earliest manuscript that has survived. So we don't know for certain what has happened in that 800 year period to the text. And yet Tacitus remains deeply important, foundational for Roman historians to understand what's been going on. Now we compare that to the New Testament, which is much larger, vastly larger than uh, Tacitus's annals. The New Testament was written in the first century, roughly the same time. Uh, we don't have 33 manuscripts. In the Greek language, we have 5,600 plus. And that's growing all the time because there's just, you know, libraries and museums that have back rooms of manuscripts that haven't been cataloged yet. Okay, so that number is growing. Um, the earliest manuscript that we have is from the second century, so less than a hundred year gap. Now that's just a very small fragment, but that's our earliest manuscript, a hundred year gap. So just think about this for a minute. Tacitus, ridiculously important for what you believe about Roman history. Compare that to the New Testament. Um, it's it's, it's not even close, right? How do you even gauge the difference between the two in regards to how much data we have and how much better it is with the New Testament? And so to just kind of really drill this home, this is a chart that uh, Dr. Thompson and I are working on right now. It's, it's incomplete. We're still trying to fill in the gaps a little bit, but this kind of gives you a good feel. It's in your handout as well. Gives you a good feel of visually how the New Testament might compare to some of these other uh, manuscripts of the past. You can roughly kind of categorize ancient texts, the ones that are here anyways, into kind of two categories. You've got maybe uh, foundational epic stories that are used as religious texts and maybe kind of cultural foundational identities for people. Things like Homer's Iliad, Virgil's Aeneid, right? These aren't historical books in as much as they're texts, uh, myth mythical texts that you build religion and that you build your cultural identity on. But then we also have historical books, things like uh, Julius Caesar's journals uh, on the Gallic Wars, uh, Suetonius's The Twelve Caesars, so 12 biographies of different Caesars, Tacitus you've got down there, Josephus, a Jewish, a Jewish scholar, his antiquities. And so let's compare these then to the New Testament. So let's start with Homer, that's our oldest one there. Homer was a uh, poem, his Iliad was a poem that was recited. And so somewhere between 800 and 600 AD, this was a poem that was being recited and kind of circulated. It was put down into written form around 600 BC. This is all very vague as far as what historians know. But around 600 uh, BC, it was put down into written form. What's the earliest fragments that we have of Homer? Um, on our chart here, you can see that it's somewhere in probably uh, the, uh, the 300s BC, somewhere in that. And so that's the fragment. When's the earliest complete manuscript that we have of Homer's Iliad? That's uh, all the way near uh, like the eight, the late 800s, um, maybe 900s uh, AD, right? Mm -hmm. And so complete, we've got around 300 complete manuscripts. Manuscripts plus fragments, uh, we're looking at around 1,757. So this is Homer's Iliad. This was one of the most important, if not the most important text for the Greeks, uh, for the Greek civilization, right? Vastly, vastly important. And 
during the Middle Ages. Uh, this was also an important text to save as well by our uh, liberal arts monks and things like that. And so lots of copies and fragments of it were still being preserved. Um, that's one of our good ones, uh, Homer's Iliad, right? 1,757. Uh, Thucydides, uh, written around 400. The first fragment, we're talking 400 years later. The first complete one, uh, around uh, late 800s, 900s, uh, early 900s uh, AD there. Total manuscripts, 96. Plato's Dialogue. Right, seminal for, uh, for philosophy and other things like that, written in the 400s roughly, um, fragments from around 200 AD, and then again, we're talking way back in the late 800s that we've got the first complete copies. Um, Julius Caesar, you've got a similar thing. Now we're not quite so late. Now we're getting closer to around the birth of Christ there. Um, the first complete copies that we have of that, way late again, late 800s. Virgil's Aeneid is the one exception to the rule. And the fact that we call it the exception to the rule is because there is a general rule here, so to speak. And this is just the exception to it. Uh, written uh, just after, uh, so it's written in the early first century. And we've got nice, big, complete manuscripts of it from the late 300s, which is fantastic. Um, and we've got lots of copies of it. And that's in Latin, so that's not in Greek. But that's the exception. You look at everything else, and what pattern do you see? Huge gaps between the first fragments and when they were written, and enormous gaps between when they were written and the first complete copies that we have. You've got the New Testament there in the middle. How does the New Testament compare to it? If the New Testament was written between 40 to 95 AD, which scholars, liberal or conservative, they would all agree on that, our earliest fragment. It's usually P52. There's a couple others in the running for it. Uh, those we're talking about were written in the late uh, first century or uh, late second century there. Um, so we're talking about a hundred year gap maybe. And then Codex Sinaiticus in the 300s uh, is our first uh, complete manuscript that we have. You've got those numbers there that are above the bar. That tells you the exact number of manuscripts that we have, roughly speaking. You know, you can plus or minus three or four um, based on what scholars kind of dating what. But this kind of tells you how the actual numbers. When we say there's 5,600 manuscripts, um, what do we mean when we say that? Well, we've got seven fragments. Uh, according to Dan Wallace, who's a very important textual critic, he would say maybe 12 in that first, uh, that first century there or in a second century AD, that first century since the writing of the New Testament, we've got around 12, which is 12 more than any other ancient book. And then in that next uh, chunk there, 117. Then after that, 136, 73. And in all of those, we've got the complete texts as well. So again, this is overwhelmingly huge compared to any of the other texts. In the Middle Ages, when they started building scriptoriums, uh, then we start getting into the thousands there. Uh, but before that, we still have vast riches, uh, hundreds more than any of the closest com uh, comparative uh, historical books of that time period. Look at Josephus. Um, we don't even have a complete manuscript of Josephus. We've got fragments, and when you put the, all those fragments together, we get the whole work, but we don't have any text of the whole work. With the New Testament, before the completion, before we, the Codex Sinaiticus, even though we only have fragments before that, we can take all those fragments and we can put them together 
And we can get the entire New Testament several times over. There's no question about that. So even though the first complete text is the Codex Sinaiticus, we still know what the New Testament is without any of those complete ones because of all the fragments that we have and everything that they cover. Um, not only do we have then the actual fragments, but we have in Greek, but we also have the quotes from the church fathers. This is just fragments of what we think were copies of the actual books of the Bible. But is that the only place where you come across the Bible? No, if you were to read someone's written sermon, what's going to be in that sermon? The quotes, right? The quotes of what they're preaching on and explaining. So even if we got rid of all 5,797 of these Greek manuscripts, if we got rid of all of them, the vast majority of historians agree that you would be able to uh, construct the entire New Testament just based on the quotes that we have from the early church fathers. Think about that. That is amazing to think about, right? So the riches that we have when it comes to the manuscripts is just, just enormous. Tacitus there, uh, we only have, so four out of the 16 books are lost. Mentioned that. Uh, Suetonius, um, that's a fragment as well. So many of these ancient works, we just don't even have the complete works of them. New Testament, um, from within a couple hundred years of when they're written, we've got complete copies of the entire thing, and we've got fragments that we could put together anyways and get the New Testament. So it is, it is an understatement of the highest level to say we've got an embarrassment of riches. Nothing comes close to it. I mean, computer programs are designed by uh, computer programmers and historians just to sort through the manuscripts of the New Testament. They don't have to do that in any other field. But we've got just so much of the New Testament that there are complete branches of, of, uh, of disciplines in history that are dedicated just to the texts, just to try and understand these texts, um, because there's just so much of it. So that's what we've got as far as the number of manuscripts and things like that, but there's still that gap, right? Um, so how do we know for certain that even though there's this gap between the earliest fragments and when they were written, that we've got the actual words? So this is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is one of the world's most popular textual critics. He's an agnostic, um, and he's very famous for writing books that have uh, very, uh, very striking titles like Jesus Misquoted, um, Forged, uh, things like that, where he's talking about how we've got uh, no clue what the original writers were talking about, um, or where he says there's no way to know what the original documents said. And so he says things like this. He says, we don't have the originals of the New Testament. What we have are thousands of copies of the New Testament that were made in most cases centuries later. These copies that were made centuries later contain numerous mistakes, thousands of mistakes, tens of thousands of mistakes, hundreds of thousands of mistakes. In fact, we wouldn't disagree with him. The mistakes, technical term for them are variants, and the number is somewhere around 400,000 variants that we have. Uh, that were gathered. So differences out of those 5,700 manuscripts, um, out of when you look at all the differences that some of them have with each other, when you total them together, there's somewhere around 400,000. That can seem troublesome to just kind of hear something like that. And he, Bart Ehrman uses this to try to make it sound as troublesome as possible. But what do we actually mean when we talk about these mistakes or variants that are made 
when we find differences between manuscripts. What do those actually look like in those 5,600 plus manuscripts? And that's what we're going to talk about here. So, does my New Testament have 400,000 errors? That's what it sounds like, right? That's what it sounds like Bart Ehrman is saying. Here's just a few points, just kind of at the offset. There are so many variants because there are so many preserved documents, okay? These 400,000 variants are spread out over 25,000 Greek manuscripts and translations. So usually this number of uh, 400,000 manuscripts, I've seen it quoted several times now, where this is in reference to not just the Greek, but also all of the translations. We don't just have Greek Bibles, we have Latin Bibles, and we've got Coptic Bibles, and we've got Ethiopian Bibles. If this is the word of life, it wasn't just copied into Greek as fast as possible, it was translated into other languages as fast as possible. And we have thousands and thousands of copies of the New Testament translated into other languages. When you put these all together, then uh, the variants would come out to around 400,000. What does this mean? Well, over 70% of the variants, this, these are uh, uh, stats from Dan Wallace, who's one of the world's uh, leaders in studying uh, texts and organizing them and photographing them and collecting them and noting all the differences. This is his, his profession and he's at the top of it. He says over 70% of these variants are questions of spelling. All right, so out of those 400,000, uh, some 300,000 of them, it's spelling. So in other words, when these writers were copying one manuscript to another, they misspelled words as they were copying it, okay? The word that they wrote down was different in spelling than the earlier word. That's already around 300,000 of them, okay? This does not include variants from word order. So if maybe they switched words around or forgotten words, if a word was accidentally left out, or repeated words or phrases. So this is just spelling. 70% uh, is just spelling. What about the other 30% then? Well, the other 30%, you've got things like word order, forgotten words, repeated words, phrases, maybe very small things that were added in there. We'll look at some examples of that. But out of then those 400,000 variants, Dan Wallace says less than 1% of variants change the meaning of the text. So if you misspell a word, does that change the meaning of the text? Very, very rarely does it change the meaning, right? Um, now, sometimes you can find a word that if you misspell it, it turns it into a different word, right? But if you use the, the American spelling of the word color versus the British spelling of the word color, does the meaning change in no way, shape, or form, right? And so 99% of these mistakes, uh, these not mistakes, but a variance of these differences, Dan Wallace says, they do not change the meaning in any way, shape, or form, all right? Within that 1%, even if the meaning is changed, he says zero change any Christian doctrine. And this is what's most important to remember. We do not have any variants that introduce any wild ideas into our Christian faith, anything that's different than what you learned in catechism class. There is not a single variant that if we followed it, uh, a single variant that we have questions about that would change what you learn in catechism class. Okay, so deeply important. So what are some of these variants then that we've got? Here's an example of typical variants of interest. All right, so there's, there's hundreds of thousands of these. So 
generally scholars don't talk about all of them, but in the texts that Pastor Getzinger and I read when we're doing our text studies and things like that, we have what are called uh, uh, books that have apparatuses in them. And those apparatus, they will tell us in the Greek if there's any variants that scholars think are interesting. All right, so these are ones where there's maybe some question they really don't know, or maybe it's a big enough variant that it's worth noting. Okay, so in John chapter three, the first half of it, this is that famous section where you've got uh, Jesus saying, uh, right, whoever, um, God so loved the world that whoever believes in me, uh, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You've got Nicodemus, you've got uh, all the language about being born again, right, and being born of water and all that kind of stuff, being born of the spirit. Uh, you've got all that stuff in here. Very heavy theological rich section. We are going to look at the variants of interest. Now, there's probably hundreds of variants in here. When you look at all 5,000 manuscripts, there's probably hundreds of them. We're going to look at what scholars think are the most important variants, the most interesting to them. And you tell me if these are interesting to you, okay? These are the most interesting variants in 21 verses, all right? So out of all of these words, there's nothing interesting until you get down to verse 13 and 14. In verse 13, uh, the United Bible Society uh, has this down in their apparatus as something that's interesting. So Jesus says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So there are differences between manuscripts when it comes to the phrase Son of Man. So out of the thousands of copies of John that exist, what are different variants that we have for them? Well, at some point out of those thousands of copies, uh, one family of manuscripts says the Son of Man. Another family says the Son of Man, the one in heaven. And another one says the Son of Man, the one from heaven. So there you go. At some point, as John was being copied thousands of times, uh, there was a change that was made in the copying of them from the different families of, of uh, copies where you've got these three differences. Uh, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the one in heaven, and the Son of Man, the one from heaven. Um, so when you kind of take a look at that, we're not going to go through maybe all of the different reasons why there might have been that change, but just maybe ask yourself this question. Uh, does this affect the overall meaning of the passage? If that phrase, the one in heaven or the one from heaven is in there? What does Jesus say in that passage? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. So what has Jesus already been defined as? The one who was in heaven and then came from heaven. <laughs> so when you add the phrase, the one in heaven or the one from heaven, does it change the meaning in any way, shape, or form? No, right? It changes the amount of information that's being conveyed to in a very slight degree, but it doesn't change your understanding of this text in any way, shape, or form. Does this affect doctrine in any way? No, because what's in there we find right outside of the text, right? Uh, does this affect how you share the gospel or how you live your Christian life? No. So this is one out of the two interesting <laughs> variants in this passage. Want to see another interesting one? So in the next verse, Jesus goes on, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So that phrase in him, 
in the Greek, there's a few different variants for that. The variants, there's one family of manuscripts that say in him, so en auto in the Greek. There's one family of manuscripts that says on him, auto. You've got another one that says in him, but with different Greek words, isauton. You've got another a family that says in him shall not perish. Now, what's interesting about adding the words uh, in him shall not perish is that in the very next verse, you've got our famous, yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, right? So that phrase shall not perish, it was just added then to this earlier verse. You take it out, it's still there, just one verse letter, later. All right, so out of the thousands of copies of John that we have, fragments and complete ones, out of this section, these are the most interesting, the most interesting to historians. Again, looking at this, in him, on him, in him, uh, does this affect the overall meaning of the passage? No. Uh, does this affect doctrine in any way? No. Uh, does this affect how you share the gospel in any way? No. So when we're talking about uh, those uh, 300,000 variants where it's, you know, spelling and things like that, we'll take a look at that next, I think. Uh, so transposition of names and word order. So in Greek, the word order isn't quite as important as in English um, because the endings of the words kind of tell you what, how those words function in it. Sometimes scholars talk about word order being important for emphasizing certain things, but in general, word order doesn't matter. Um, and so sometimes you have what's called transposition of names. So the switching around of, of orders of, of, the, of the words in a name um, and word orders affected and things like that. So in Matthew 1, uh, in the, right after the genealogy at the beginning there, Matthew 1.18, this is one example of what's noted as, a, as something that's very interesting to scholars compared to the other uh, types of variants. This one's a very interesting one. 18 there. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. All right. So the word Jesus Christ there, we've got some variants. We've got some variants. You want to see them? We've got one family of manuscripts that says Jesus Christ, Jesu Christu. We've got another family that says Christu Jesu, so Christ Jesus. We've got one family that says Jesus, so they've forgotten the word Christ. Um, and we've got another family that says just Christ, so they've forgotten the word Jesus. So there's four uh, different families of variants that we have with this phrase. Um, outside of this Bible verse, do you think we could figure out uh, whether or not Jesus is the Christ? If the word Christ had been dropped. If the word Christ had been used, do you think we would have been able to figure out that he was talking about Jesus? Yeah. So again, we're taking a look at these variants here. Does this affect the overall meaning of the passage? In no way, shape, or form, right? Does this affect doctrine in any way? No. Does this affect how you share the gospel? Well, why is this interesting then? Why is this interesting at all? Um, well, say you've only got four copies, of four manuscripts of the New Testament of uh, that section in Matthew, and one of your manuscripts says Christ, the other one says Jesus Christ, and then another one says Christ Jesus, and another one says Jesus, and you're trying to figure out what the original is. You've only got these four manuscripts. This is all kind of hypothetical. I don't know what the actual 
a manuscript history is of the last one that we were just looking at. But just as an example, how do you figure out what the original is? You got four options. If you don't know anything else except what I've just told you, what's the chance that it's Christ and what's the chance that it's Christ Jesus? Roughly 25% for each, right? You don't really know all that much because you've got so few manuscripts, right? There's few variants, um, but you've got so few manuscripts. But as soon as you start adding manuscripts, and you start adding where those manuscripts come from, so where they could have possibly been copied off of other manuscripts. So there's, there's areas in uh, the Mediterranean where these, these families kind of originate from. So there's like Alexandria, and there's Rome, and there's Turkey, and there's Jerusalem. And we can then find these kind of relationships between the manuscripts from one region and the region, the other regions, and see how they're different and things like that. You start adding them, and all of a sudden things change a lot more. So now you've got uh, nine manuscripts there. Jesu Christu, Jesu Christu, Christu, Jesu Christu, Jesu Christu, Jesu Christu, Christu Jesu, Christu Jesu, Jesu. And then let's say you find some slightly older manuscripts now. And you're able to kind of start putting together what are called genealogies, where you're trying to kind of figure out how one manuscript gets copied from the other one. And so uh, those genealogies start getting put together. When you start getting all this information then, the different manuscripts, maybe the times and the places where they come from, all of a sudden, that question of what the actual original is, it doesn't become quite so mysterious anymore. At this point, what would you say? So just taking a look at it, what do you think the original probably was? Yeah, there's a good chance that it was Jesus Christ. And if it wasn't Jesus Christ, maybe Christ Jesus, right? Generally, as a general rule, textual critics say it's a lot easier to lose words than for uh, phrases to be added, right? So it's a lot more common that something will be a little bit longer than it is uh, because it, <clears throat> words were added than that, um, than that it was originally uh, shorter and grew, right? So, so just as a general rule. So this is some of the earlier ones that we're looking at here. Another thing, spelling. Let's just finish up the very easy ones here. So in Matthew chapter one, in the genealogy, there's some very interesting variants when it comes to spelling. Uh, Boaz, we've got manuscripts that spell Boaz a couple different ways, Obed a couple different ways, David four different ways, Solomon two different ways, Asa two different ways. Um, now back then they did not have spell check, they did not have dictionaries, and in fact spelling was just not an issue uh, for them in the same way that it is for us today. Uh, at least we don't think it was. And so we've got this kind of variety of differences. Um, again, remember, this is what uh, Dan Wallace said, 70% were spelling, things like this, when we're talking about the variants. Um, so with the four different spellings of David, yep. are, they all, are all those spellings recognized as being David? Could one of those spellings be something? Could they be someone else? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know for sure but you read each one of them and it reads David, right? So they might be using different letters, uh, but the general pronunciation is the same between the three of them or between the four of them. Uh, they're just, uh, I, I'm almost certain that they're just recognized as different spellings of the name David. So David, very common name, right? Just like uh, it is today, uh, even more so back then. So you would find the name David written millions of times probably in ancient documents. And so out of all those times that's written, you're just going to, come across a variety of different spellings for them, right? Yeah, oh, I had an example of that. Um, ooh, where was it? We'll end on this note here. Um, 
Oh, I had an example of it. Uh, for example, what was it like the name Krista? Just in the seven years that I've been here, I've come across, I think, at least seven different spellings for the name Krista, right? Uh, so you, there's just a lot of kind of uh, potential uh, similarities between how we do things today. Um, so those are especially the things dealing with very small changes. Those make up the vast majority. When we get together next time, we'll look at maybe some of the larger ones. So when Dan Wallace says 1% changes the actual meaning, we'll start taking a look at some of those, things that might fall into those categories. And we will look at um, roughly, there's maybe 12 major ones. And we're going to look at, out of those 12 major variants that scholars argue about, we'll look at the top three or four of them the biggest ones, the things that I think you'll hear most about. And we'll ask, does this change doctrine? You know, regardless of what variant do, that we go with, does it change how you'll show your faith? Does it change the overall meaning of the gospel, right? And uh, we'll ask ourselves those questions. We... Ended last time looking at the comma Johannian then, this idea of in 1 John, how we've got the, uh, the addition of these couple lines that are in there. And so in the KJV, we see these, these were added in there specifically because uh, the Latin Vulgate had them in there. But the actual Greek manuscript that the KJV is based on the actual Greek uh, manuscript that Erasmus put together in his first edition, he didn't even want this in there because he found no Greek manuscripts at all that had uh, these verses in there. And so he said, we shouldn't put these in there. And so it wasn't until they actually produced, after he came out with the first edition, they produced a Greek manuscript where they put it in there. They kind of bullied him, the Catholic Church at that point, into including these verses in his uh, reading. But there were no, no uh, verses. Uh, these verses were not in any Greek manuscripts of any age, not early, not late, doesn't matter. Um, they were not in the vast majority of early texts of any translation. And so today when people do translations, it's widely recognized that there just isn't a manuscript history for these texts. It doesn't matter, the church body, the publishing house, um, NIV to EHV. The EHV was the translation put out by Wells pastors. They don't have these verses in there because there's just no textual reason to have them in there. We don't find anything that would suggest that. What we do have is around the 9th, 10th century, the phrase begins appearing um, as footnotes. And we did a very kind of close look at this where we can find that those verses added as a footnote down there. And at some point that footnote got introduced and placed into the, into the Latin text, into the Vulgate. So that's one example of a textual variant where there's really no discussion in any way, shape or form. It's a bigger one, but there's no discussion between uh, textual critics, uh, the vast majority of, of professional textual critics in regards to whether or not this should or should not be in the Bible. We're all basically in agreement here. The KJV and the text it was based on was based on a very small number of texts, none of them ancient. And now we, we just have a better understanding, right? So that's uh, one and a half verses right there. There's a couple, we're gonna just look at the real big heavy hitters right now. There's a couple more, uh, three more that we're going to look at where it's a little bit larger. So here's a bigger one. 
Luke chapter 22. Luke writes, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so this is an account that we find in other gospels as well, right? It's not unique to Luke, uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's in the synoptics. But in Luke's, there's this kind of added detail in there. Uh, An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So the words there that are in the yellow, those are ones that are not found in all of our ancient manuscripts for the Gospel of Luke. Let me just find my notes here. Right, and so early manuscripts um, are pretty much split evenly between including these two verses and omitting them. Almost all late manuscripts include these verses, and it seems just if you're just asking this as far as you know a scribe copying one thing to another. In general, there's this kind of principle. It's less likely that a scribe would purposely omit a long phrase uh, than uh, add it. So some. Uh, so some historians say that these two lines were added by someone maybe around the 400s or something like that. But it's split kind of evenly between the two of them. It's a possibility, I suppose, that a scribe added these verses, um, but it's also very possible that they were in the original. The bottom line is, is that out of the thousands and thousands of manuscripts that we have, historians look at these two verses and they're kind of split on it. They're not too sure based on what we have, whether or not these two verses, again, out of the thousands that we have in the Bible, they're split on whether or not these two verses are in it or not. And so uh, there's sometimes a footnote to these two verses that are in uh, modern translations. Now let's ask these questions. Um, Does this do whether or not these two verses, whether or not they are in the New Testament, does this affect the overall meaning of the passage? The overall meaning, as in the general purpose of what's going on here, nothing really changes, right? We don't say that somehow Luke uh, is making this account different than the other Gospels because of the appearance of these two ones. What's the general idea? Jesus is in anguish, right? He's in anguish. He's being tortured emotionally about what's about to happen, and he's praying to his father uh, that this cup be taken from him. But then he ends, not my will, but yours be done. And then he finds his disciples uh, having, in a sense, failed him. Uh, They're asleep while he's going through this anguish, right? Uh, But you do have some historical details here that that are added, right? So we would definitely say that the technical meaning, that there is meaning that's added by these two passages. But the overall meaning of the whole section, it doesn't really do a whole lot, right? how about this? Does this affect doctrine in any way? Is anything lost that's not found in other scriptures in regards to what you believe, what you hang your faith hat on? We knew that there were angels before, before these passages were in here. What do angels do? 
they minister to God's people, right? They protect God's people. Um, and we have other passages where angels are ministering to Jesus, right? Like after the temptation in the wilderness. Um, so it doesn't really change any substance of what we believe in any way, shape, or form. There's just this dramatic coloring to the event of sweating drops like blood, right? Um, but what we believe doesn't change in any way, shape, or form. Does this affect how you share the gospel or how you live your Christian life? Many of you that I've done counseling with, you know that a lot of times I go right to uh, this, this account in Christ's life of Jesus in the wilderness so that we can look, or not Jesus in the wilderness, uh, Jesus in the garden, so that we can talk about the emotional things that Jesus went through in his humanity. But these verses don't really play into that at all. Does this affect how you're going to share your faith with your friends? No. So what do we do? We look at this and we say, God has provided for us 5,700 some Greek manuscripts plus thousands of other translations. Out of all of those things, somewhere along the line, copyists have left us a question with these two verses. And we can go either way. And it doesn't change anything which direction you go. Right? Um, so there's that one. But now there's two really famous textual variants. Everything that we've looked at so far, again, we're talking 90% of them have to deal with uh, one word, maybe two words. A much smaller than have to deal with two words or more. Then you've got less than 1% um, that deal with a verse or two, like something like this. But then we've got two where we're looking at larger sections, okay? But there's only two. There aren't any other variants outside of these two where we're talking about kind of larger sections of scripture. Everything other than these two large sections, everything other is a matter of, of either a stroke of a pen to a few words uh, to a verse like this one here. So if you were reading your gospel of Mark, and you were reading it in the NIV, doesn't matter uh, which edition, when you got to Mark chapter 16, the last chapter there, you've got the women uh, that discovered the tomb empty, and then they meet an angel, and the angel says to the women that the Lord has arisen, and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. And then the very next verse is, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, after reading that verse, there's this little thing that's added there. Again, uh, if you don't, guys don't mind, maybe check your mics to mute them. Uh, if you're watching in on Zoom, mute them so that uh, we can all hear things clearly. So as you're reading through after verse 8, you come oftentimes to this little thing that says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. And then after that, it will give you 9 through 20. In the NIV 2011, it even puts it in italics so that the text is a little bit different. So what we've got here is we've got uh, a large number of early manuscripts that don't have verses 9 through 20, and they end just on verse 8. Now, if you're a historian kind of looking at this, just at the manuscripts and nothing else, and you come there to verse 8, and the manuscript that you've been reading just kind of ends on verse 8, what might you be telling yourself? This is a very weird ending to a gospel, right? That the last 
words of a gospel about Jesus uh, living, dying, and rising for our sins, the last words to us are, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That seems like a really weird way to end a gospel, right? So we've got a few options about what could have happened historically. One option is that uh, some of the earliest manuscripts, some of the earliest copies of Mark's gospel, the ending got lost. And so scribes then came upon this manuscript and they looked at it and they said, uh, this is not ending the right way. Obviously something has been lost. And so they then composited something that uh, was added to the end of it. And if you read verses nine through 20, what is the actual content of verses nine through 20? It's basically cliff notes of what the other gospels say about Jesus' resurrection. So it mentions things like the road to Emmaus, and it mentions Jesus appearing to the 11 later on, and things like that. And then it mentions the Great Commission, even in slightly different words. So it's kind of taking these thoughts from the other gospels and creating a kind of nice ending to the end of it. So that's one possible possibility, is that some scholar came along, recognized that it was missing, and so he added the ending to it. There's another option. It was supposed to end at verse 8. That if you kind of look at the way that Mark is written, there's kind of this action-packed literary style to it. And maybe the literary purpose was to end with this as kind of a cliffhanger, right? To make you want to, to think and read more to it if you were Roman kind of reading this. And me personally, just from a purely literary standpoint, I, I kind of like that idea of it kind of ending with this kind of interesting way. Um, and if that's the case, then a later scribe might have sought, and even though it was supposed to end at verse 8, he then said, well, it doesn't sound like it's supposed to end at verse 8, and so he added stuff to it. Um, the other option is that we do have that verses 9 through 20 are authentic, but that in some manuscripts it was lost and in some they weren't, right? And so in that case, then, we've got not only in the manuscripts that we've looked at editions where there's no verses. We've got some where there's verses 9 through 20. And then we've got a couple other options where it's slightly different truncated endings as well. All this to say is that there's a lot of options out there. And the earliest manuscripts, according to the NIV here, they don't have these verses here. Now, what's interesting is if you have the EHV, which is the translation that just came out, uh, the one that was done by Wells Pastors, it's got this footnote when it comes to the end. It says, this translation includes verses 9 through 20 because they are included in the vast majority of Greek manuscripts that have been handed down to us. Evidence for the existence of this long ending extends back to the second century. In the early centuries of the church, these verses were read in worship services on Easter and Ascension Day. However, a few early manuscripts and early translations omit verses 9 through 20, and a few manuscripts have a different ending. So that's the way that they put it there. But notice what they're saying and what they're not saying in the footnote here. They say that the vast majority of Greek manuscripts have this, have this ending. Well, what are the vast majority of Greek manuscripts that have this ending? They're later ones, okay? Um, what they don't communicate here is that the vast majority of Greek manuscripts does not include early Greek manuscripts, okay? So we just don't have early Greek manuscripts that have this extended uh, ending right now.
But they go on and they say, but there is a tradition of this at the end. So what we do have is we've got references from some of the church fathers that make reference to this ending. So here's uh, just one example. Irenaeus, who lived 130 to 202, famous work called Against Heresies. And this is what he wrote in this treatise. He said also towards the conclusion of his gospel, Mark says, so then, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sits on the right hand of God. So he quotes Mark chapter 16, verse 19. So here we've got a church father quoting a piece of scripture that we don't find in the oldest manuscripts that we have right now, confirming what had been spoken by the prophet. The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your foes your footstool. Thus, God and the Father are truly one and the same. He who was announced by the prophets and handed down by the true gospel, whom we Christians worship and love with the whole heart as the maker of heaven and earth and of all things therein. So, Irenaeus lived 130 to 202. That's, that's really close, really close to when the gospels were written, right? We're talking less than a century, right? We're talking um, maybe 50 years, uh, 60 years after some of the gospels. And he's quoting Mark chapter 16, 19. So where does that leave us when we're looking at the long ending here? Um, so where does that leave us? Uh, we have on the one hand, not all the manuscripts that have ever been written. We only have the ones that have survived. Out of the ones that have survived for 2,000 years, right, or 1,500 years, those earliest ones, they don't have the long ending. But we do have allusions to the long ending. So if you were to edit your Bible in such a way, if you were someone that was putting together a translation or a version of the Greek New Testament, and all you were going to do is take into consideration uh, manuscripts, you would say, like many uh, historical, many uh, New Testament historians today would say, this ending wasn't in the original. If you're looking a little bit more broadly and you're taking into consideration a few quotes, there's maybe two or three other ones like Irenaeus's that we can find here where there's uh, maybe not a direct quote, but a very clear reference to the ending. When you put those things together, you can clearly see that Irenaeus was aware of this ending in some way, shape, or form. And so that would maybe motivate you. But when you look at that long ending and you ask yourself whether or not you have it, right? Whether or not this long ending is part of it, does it, over, over, uh, does it affect the overall meaning of the passage? It maybe affects the way we understand how Mark was written and the type of kind of literary style that the writer is trying to do, but the actual content of it, what do you think? Like, does it affect the overall meaning of the passage? It clearly doesn't finish the account in the way that the other gospels do, right? Um, does this affect doctrine in any way? Is there anything in the long ending of Mark that we would need in order to support a doctrine that you believe in? Just about everyone in every church body says no, except for there's a small group of Appalachian uh, Christians that are snake handlers, right? Uh, you've maybe heard of this, right? Where they'll, they'll handle poisonous snakes and they think if you're a true believer and the snake bites you, uh, poisonous snake bites you, you'll survive, right? And things like that. And one of the verses that they point to is that in the ending here, there's a reference to 
the miracles that the uh, early apostles did in snake biting. Now, what's that a reference to? That's a reference to Paul during his missionary trips when after getting shipwrecked, he was bit by a viper and he just shook the thing off and didn't die. And that was a big deal at that time. So again, it's not as if you have something entirely unique. You look at that long section, that long ending, and you tell me whether there's something in there that you would not believe because we didn't have that long ending. Um, there's just nothing in there. Uh, the ending, when you read it, it kind of reads as if it's summarizing the things that we know from the other resurrection accounts um, and the ascension accounts. Um, does this affect how you share the gospel or how you live your Christian life? Again, if you're not finding any new doctrine in here, it doesn't really change a whole lot, right? Um, I would assume that if you had never listened to this Bible class, um, you would have evangelized in identically the exact same way as before. Um, this just, again, just doesn't change content. All this means is that we've got this interesting historical decision that translators need to make based on the evidence that they have there. Um, now we'll go on to one more. So again, there's two biggies. One is the ending of Mark. The second one is what's called the pericope adultera, uh, which uh, you probably all know. This is that event where Jesus is with his disciples and an adulterous woman is brought before him. And that adulterous woman, uh, uh, there's Pharisees that are there and they say this woman ought to be stoned. And Jesus says, right, he bends over, writes in the sand. And then Jesus says, you who have no sin, be the first to cast a stone, right? And so it's a very moving, very touching event, right, that we have that's in John's gospel. When you're reading, uh, again, almost all modern translations today, when you get to that point in John 7:53, and then the beginning of chapter 8, you'll find a note like this. This is what's found in uh, our NIV Pew Bibles upstairs. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses, wholly or in part, after John 7:36, John 21. Sometimes it's found in Luke in a couple places as well. So from a manuscript of you, if we're just looking at the manuscripts and the, the Greek manuscripts and the manuscripts alone, what we find are the earliest ones uh, do not have this account or sometimes it's found in other places uh, throughout John as well. Um, and so there's some questions that we can ask about this. So that's the way that the NIV puts their note there. This is the way that the EHV puts their footnote to this section. So this again is the translation put out by Wells Pastors just in the last couple of years. It says some witnesses to the text omit 753 uh, uh, through 811 or include these verses in other places within John's gospel. The witnesses that include these verses are early and widespread throughout most of the early church. So it kind of sounds like the two are disagreeing. Would you? What you think, right? So one says uh, that, that there are witnesses that are early and widespread. The other one says uh, the earliest manuscripts do not have John 7, right? So what's going on here? Uh, what's the basis for the disagreement? So what we know is the earliest and most important fragments of John's gospel, like the earliest, earliest ones, uh, Papyri 66, which comes from around 200 AD, 
papyri 75, which is uh, dated from 175 to 225 AD, as well as most New Testament uncials, uh, they do not include the Pericope Adulteri. And the earliest Greek manuscript that contains the Pericope Adulteri is Codex Betze, which comes from 400 to 500 AD. So that's the earliest one that we have. So that's considered early by EHV. It's not considered early enough by NIV. So that's why the wording is a little bit different between the two. So from a kind of manuscript point, the earliest ones, it's missing or it's kind of in weird places. And that leads a lot of textual critics to kind of scratch their heads and to wonder whether this was in the original. In support of its inclusion, though, many early Latin manuscripts contain the account. And both Eusebius of Caesarea and an early Christian text called the Didascalia, which is a really cool text from around 200, they reference the account. So it's not as if we don't have references to this event in the ministry of Jesus that come early. We do have references to it, but we just don't find a document where in John it comes after chapter 7 and the beginning of 8. Instead, we've got references to it. Um, Jerome, the author of the Vulgate, he wrote that the account was present in many Greek and Latin manuscripts. So Jerome is an important person. He's, he's one of our earliest translators. Uh, he wrote one of the most important translations in the New Testament, New Testament into the Vulgate, and he said it was around. So in summary, what we would say is there's very little manuscript evidence, but there is some early evidence of references to the account existing. And that's kind of where we're left. So one example, uh, Augustine, so 354 to 430, uh, Augustine said this, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, removed from the manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress, as if he who had said sin no more had granted permission to sin. So what do we got here? What we've got is Augustine. Is he saying that the Pericope Adulteri is in the Gospel of John? He's saying it was in there, but it was taken out, which tells you what? That in a lot of the manuscripts at St. Augustine's time, it's missing. But he's saying it was taken out. So Augustine, this, this is evidence that, you know, that that account was around in some way, shape, or form. But Augustine's kind of in the same seat as we are today, and he's believing. Um, I think this was originally in the original ones, but we don't have it in the manuscripts today, right? So there's some confusion for Augustine as well, uh, around 430, you know, and he's working through some of the same questions that we did. So that's what we have for the Pericope Adulteri. Um, Looking at it, does this affect the overall meaning of the passage? Now, this is obviously a full event in the ministry of Christ that we don't have in any of the other Gospels. So it's not as if if we took this out, um, we could just get this event somewhere else. This is taking out of the Bible an actual episode in Christ's life. Um, so yeah, right, this is, this is significant. We would definitely admit that. Does it affect doctrine in any way? Does it affect doctrine in any way? If you maybe think of it this way, if you had gone your whole life as a Christian, never reading this account or never knowing about this account, would it change what you believe? 
Would it change what you were taught in catechism class about adultery or about mercy? Or about the character of Christ? No. I mean, the reason we love this passage so much is because it really reflects the character of Christ that we know so well in the gospel, right? His amazing mercy, uh, and especially his mercy towards outcasts. We find this towards, we find this everywhere in the gospel, this, this idea of Christ. And so we just love it when we see it here as well. Um, does this affect how you share the gospel or how you live your Christian life? Might affect the way that you share the gospel if you'd never heard this before. Uh, might it affect the way that you share the gospel with someone that was caught in adultery. So if you're talking to a skeptic and they say, well, you've got these two main sections and you, you don't know what the original said. Therefore, you have no idea about other parts of the Bible, right? And the whole point of what we've been going through is to be able to say, no, like, like an empirical study of this demonstrates the exact opposite that out of all 27 books of the Bible and thousands and thousands, right? A thousand percent more data than the next, you know, closest ancient text. We've come up with two sections that we quibble over. Two sections. That's it, right? That's astounding to think about, right? And when you look at those two sections, again, like it, it does not radically, it doesn't change anything that, that we believe, right? But instead, it's just a question that we have to as humans deal with, because God has decided to work his plan of salvation out through sinful humans, right? Flawed humans. Yeah. The stumbling block comes up when we teach that, when we teach false ideas, that our English translations are authoritative, right? That they cannot be questioned, you know, or that something like the Vulgate cannot be questioned in some way, shape, or form. When we start adding these doctrines, then all of a sudden we've got a problem because then we find these conflicts. But Christ never makes the promise that his, his words will be copied perfectly by every single person, that they will never be misspoken. He doesn't make those kinds of promises. We've seen the promises that he makes. Now he calls down curses in Revelation on anyone who changes what he writes, um, but that's a different thing, right? Yeah, yeah, good points. Um, so we're just going to pick up right where we left off last time with kind of the conclusions that we've been talking about in regards to textual variance. So we mentioned that because we have uh, 5,700 some manuscripts and manuscript fragments of the New Testament, plus thousands and thousands of other translations, copies and manuscripts of other translations over the past uh, 2,000 years, because we have literally tens of thousands of manuscripts and copies. If we were to count any kind of change that would come maybe between someone copying, if someone was copying, let's say the, the Gospel of Luke, I invite you to go home and try this out. Hand copy the Gospel of Luke. You will make mistakes every now and then, even if it's just typos, right? Even if you're just maybe doing spelling mistakes or punctuation mistakes. But any one of those mistakes, historians notice them and they catalog these. And because there are tens of thousands of these manuscripts and manuscript fragments, there are around 400,000 of these variants. And that number sounds scary, but the moment you begin to actually start looking at what that means, we realize that this is just more testimony about the amazing work that our God has done preserving God's word for us. Out of those 400,000, 99% or more of the New Testament text is not seriously disputed by New Testament textual scholars. So out of all those variants, 
there's no debate among scholars. In fact, it's the exact opposite because we have so many manuscripts, there's just very little room for debate. We've been, we looked at the big heavy hitters. Those are the heavy hitters because there's nothing else. We know what the heavy hitters are because there's thousands of manuscripts and there's just not a whole lot more that's on the minds of textual critics. Uh, the reason we have so many textual variants for the New Testament is because we have thousands more manuscripts than any comparative ancient Greek text. Okay? More manuscripts necessarily means more variants, but also potentially far greater knowledge of the original. In other words, a far greater sense uh, that uh, we have um, confidence in what we believe the original people wrote. And this is all from a human standpoint. Again, historians just kind of doing their work in academia. The variants are almost entirely unexciting. We looked at the exciting ones, okay? Uh, the big kind of dramatic ones, we looked at them and we saw that they have no bearing on Christian doctrines, uh, Christian doctrine. There is no variant in the history of the Christian church that would change what you learned in catechism class. That's just the bottom line. Um, this was our quote that we looked at, summarized by Craig Blomberg, who's a New Testament historian, wrote a great book, Can We Still Believe the Bible? If you want more on this, that's a great one to look at. He was uh, one of the translators of the NIV. He says, by now, the point should be clear. The vast majority of textual variants are wholly uninteresting except to specialists. And we looked at some of those things that were interested to specialists. And those things that were interesting to specialists was like, in this verse, is it Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ? Or was it just Christ or was it Jesus? You know, and things like that. Wholly uninteresting to just about any other human being. Uh, less than 3% of them are significant enough to be presented in one of the two standard critical editions of the Greek New Testament. So any of these significant ones, Pastor Getzinger and I, we look at them regularly when we're doing our sermon preparations, that they're in our Greek Bibles that we, that we translate from. Only about a tenth of 1%, all right, a tenth of 1% are interesting enough to make their way into footnotes in most English translations. Okay, a tenth of 1% are so interesting that they're in your footnotes and you can see them, okay? So you can open up your Bibles, doesn't matter the translation these days, you can open them up and you can look at those footnotes and see for yourself where there's some type of question by historians. And it's, it's out of all of, the, all of the variants, it's a tenth of 1%. That's amazing, right? That's absolutely amazing to think about. But the reason we can say it's a tenth of 1%, the reason that's so small it's because we have so many manuscripts. The more manuscripts, the more confidence we can talk about what uh, was in the originals. Again, or that historians can talk about what was in the originals. So Blomberg continues, it cannot be emphasized strongly enough that no orthodox doctrine or ethical practice of Christianity depends solely on any disputed wording. Okay? There are always undisputed passages one can consult that teach the same truths Tellingly, in the appendix to the paperback edition of Misquoting Jesus, Ehrman himself, we had a quote that we've looked at several times now, Bart Ehrman, uh, a guy that's very critical of the Bible, but he's, he's, a, he's an extremely good Bible scholar, and he's, he's one of these guys that is always talking about how all these variants gives us a lot of trouble knowing what the originals were written. Well, this is what he says, right? Um, the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So he will himself admit that despite all of these variants, it does not change what Christians have believed throughout time. 
It just hasn't. If someone were to choose all the Pastor. opposite variants and readings transmitted to us, it would still not change one teaching in the Bible. If people were to choose whatever variants they want, it would not change Christian doctrine. So you could just choose all the opposite variants and nothing would change. Was there a comment or a question? Maybe someone was yeah, just Pastor, I just, I, Oh yeah, Fran. I just yep. had a quick question. It's Fran. Yeah. Um, if if uh, Bart Ehrman, like, I mean, you started this with his quote about how there are th hundreds, then there are thousands, then there are tens of thousands. And the way he wrote that was for emphasis to really draw your brain to how many mistakes there were. Yeah. And, and then in the appendix to his own book, in the appendix, interesting enough, as opposed to it doesn't say in the body, um, what, what is his point? I, I mean, if he's acknowledging, as you've just told us, that these are of, of, of little consequence, yeah. um, these variants, uh, what is he trying to achieve as a scholar? I'm, I'm confused. Yeah, I mean, we can't read his heart, right? Um, exactly what he's up to. But uh, in his own words, uh, if you, you know, I invite you to YouTube, listen to, you know, go find debates between him. There's a really good one between him and uh, Daniel Wallace, uh, the other textual critic that we've been quoting a lot from, uh, Daniel Wallace says, 400,000 variants, it changes nothing. This should not worry about anything at all. Bart Ehrman, on the other hand, right, he's taking the extreme and he says, this is problematic. Watch them debate and see um, what they say about it. What we can tell, at least just from Bart Ehrman's own words, is he was uh, raised as a fundamentalist Christian or very, very uh, evangelical Christian believing, apparently maybe got taught that uh, there were no mistakes that were ever made in the transmission of the Bible. And then he went off to grad school. He studied with uh, Bruce Metzger, the world's most renowned textual critic, who is a conservative Christian, um, and uh, found the opposite, and that rattled his faith. And so his big kind of draw seems to be that he wants to really kind of shake any Christian's uh, belief that there were no mistakes that were made in the transmission of the Bible. And when we get to our discussion questions, just in a few minutes, we'll ask ourselves, you know, does, is this something that should shake our faith, right? Is this something that's problematic that God would allow uh, uh, humans to make mistakes as they're copying the Bible, right? Um, so, We'll maybe talk a little bit more about that in the discussion question, but it's just kind of hard to tell motivation-wise, you know, what's going on with that. But the bottom line is that when we're talking about mistakes, right, God allowing mistakes to happen, what are we actually talking about here? We're talking about still having a 99.9% .9 confidence in what was copied, right? It's that 0.1% that, uh, you know, that, that Bart Ehrman really wants us to focus on and kind of blow up. And our sinful nature wants to kind of blow that up as well. Yeah, very good question. Um, I added just one more slide in here just to kind of touch on a couple of the questions that we had, uh, discussions that we've been having about translation. We're not going to get into translation theory, but just in regards to translations and more manuscripts. Um, so newer translations that we have today, virtually all the translations that are coming out these days are based on way more manuscripts than translations in the past. So when, for example, uh, when Luther was doing his German translation of, of uh, the Bible, he had a very small handful of manuscripts. He had Erasmus's Greek text, which was based on a few dozen uh, Greek manuscripts, I believe. Um, then he had 
you know, some Hebrew manuscripts and things like that. So he had a very limited number, you know, probably we could safely say less than a hundred. It might've been a dozen or something like that. New, uh, the, 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 um, KJV, for example, very small number of manuscripts as well. And they were looking a lot at the Vulgate and things like that. Today, the manuscripts that people work with when they're doing translations are in the thousands, okay, in the thousands. So new translations are based on more manuscripts. Well, what can this tell us about translations? Does that mean our translations today are better than the ones in the past? First of all, we have to say it's a good thing, right, that we have more manuscripts. Second of all, Erasmus and Jerome, so the guys that were doing these translations in the past, Martin Luther, they would have loved more manuscripts, right? So they want to be in our position with as many manuscripts as possible. Uh, more manuscripts have shown this, though. Hardly any changes in the text used for translations in the past, okay? So when we compare, for example, Luther's uh, uh, German New Testament uh, with our modern New Testament, when we're looking at the the, the manuscripts that he was used with ours today, there's just very few differences between the two. Okay, we're still talking about in the few percent tile. Same with the manuscripts that the KJV was based on in ours today, right? Um, so there's hardly any changes in the texts used for translations. We're not talking about translation theory. We're not talking about how those texts are translated, but the texts that they were using compared to the wide number of texts that we have today, there's still very few differences between them. They were aware of, of a lot of the big ones that we were talking about today, right? That has not changed. Manuscripts used by the translators were reliable. So there were no doctrine that would have been affected by the manuscripts that they were using. Their manuscripts introduced no new doctrine. Now, uh, a translator can translate in such a way that things maybe affect doctrine, right? So for example, using inclusive language today, that will make certain passages more accurate uh, when you're talking about humankind rather than just man, right? Um, but it will also make others inaccurate ones that are specifically dealing with gender, right? Or something like that. So the translation can affect doctrine in certain ways, but the manuscripts that they were using, we have to stress this, the manuscripts that they had there, uh, the content of those manuscripts that their translations were based on had no, had no different doctrines than the ones that we are using today. God's word has always been with the church, okay? So we can look at all these translations and we can find Christ in all of them. Uh, we just have more human certainty that the translations of the past are reliable. So when Luther was doing his translation or when Erasmus was gathering all of his Greek manuscripts or uh, the people that were doing their, the KJV or you name it, Jerome with the Vulgate, when these people are doing their translations, they're putting a lot of trust in God that the manuscripts that they have uh, in their day, that, you know, that God's giving them everything that they need in order to uh, give us God's word, in order to continue to pass on the truths of God's word. Today, we, like from a human perspective, Atheist critical scholars, agnostic critical scholars that aren't anywhere on the religious spectrum at all, uh, they think that we have what the original people wrote in the world of textual criticism. And that's just an amazing thing, right, to be able to say that today. So with that, uh, an honest examination of the textual transmission in the New Testament may raise some questions, 
but the chief of them ought to be and has to be, how great is our God to preserve for us more manuscript evidence by far than any other book of antiquity. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Um, man, that is just so true. Today, we, we can just marvel at this truth, right? A man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And today we still rest on every word, right? That comes from the mouth of God as we, uh, 